we need to lament. Prayers written by and for the people of God are an ancient practice that are not lost to our modern times, although some of our modern churches perhaps have lost it. Psalms is an ancient collection of prayers and songs of the people of God, by the people of God, for the people of God. And many of them are lamentations, cries of how long, O Lord. You all know, I'm sure, of the horrific discovery of the 215 children's bodies in unmarked graves in Kamloops and the ongoing grief in our nation over this, and especially in the First Nations community. And we can't just move on from the pain in our nation because we are in the middle of it. But we can bring it to the one who loves the least, loves the injured and the wounded and stands with the grieving and somehow says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. We can't just push aside injustice because it doesn't affect us directly when it affects our brothers and sisters, because if it affects someone else, then it affects all of us. We are all connected. So our prayers, I pray today, will be a tendril of comfort that will reach out to those who need it today. And in the shadow of all of that, I'm going to change up what we do again this week with Lectio and read a part of the psalm and then engage with a litany from a book called Rally, uh, Communal Prayers for Lovers of Jesus and Justice, edited and compiled, compiled by Brittany Wynne Lee. In the introduction to that, she writes, I don't know if you know the word litany, but it's a, it's a prayer. And it's a prayer that we pray in community. Um, litanies, this is what she says, offer a radical welcome to people in the way that they remove intimidation that participants may feel in entering into communal prayer. Litanies just say, we are here. And the grace of them is that we can connect without the pressure of having to perform or having to make up words of our own and be anything other than what we are. Litanies are a rhythmic dance laced with lamentations and the joy of old spirituals. A sacred inhale and exhale for when we find ourselves asking, what will we say when we gather? Litanies are about the collective breath intended to center our actions with mindfulness and togetherness and to be a resource for wordless people to be a way for the spirit to intercede, like it says in Romans 8, 26, helping us in our weakness when we do not know how to pray. So these are something that we do together, more than just listening to a prayer and saying amen. It's the work of the people of God together. So I've asked some people to read different parts. And, uh, and then with me, if you wouldn't mind all just joining in and saying the words that are in bold. Um, and so let's just... Uh, Stephen, if you wouldn't mind just highlighting Harry and Jen and Lando and Kathy and adding them as a spotlight. Um, Casey, Karina, uh, who is going to be Tyson, um, those people added, then we will be, uh, if you can add all of those guys, that would be cool. Um, and then I'm going to read Psalm uh, 130. <laughs> From the depths of despair, I appeal to you, O eternal one. Lord, hear my cry. Attune your ears to my humble prayer. If you, eternal one, recorded each offense, Lord, who on earth could stand innocent? But with you, forgiveness exists. That's why true respect of you might flow. So I wait for the eternal. My soul awaits rescue. And I put my hope in his transforming word. My soul waits for the Lord to break into the world more than night watchmen expect the break of day, even more than night watchmen expect the break of day. So this litany is uh, a litany for lamenting every act of violence. Harry, right, take it away. 
Come and hear our pain, O God. Come near and hear our complaint. Violence is singing a victory song and our arms are hanging limp at our sides. Our tears cannot stop. Violence has cut us. Bleeding, we stand together now. Make us brave enough to stand in front of violence and call it a thief and a liar. In your mercy, make all things new again. Make us lion-hearted, roaring at the acts of violence around us, more dedicated to the common good than our own preservation. May we learn to place those who are hurting first and ourselves second. In your, your mercy, mercy, make us brave again. Make us mercy, calling to those committing the violence, like lost lambs living in darkness, drinking bitterness, disconnected from their true selves. May we call them back to the fold, shouting loudly that they are created for life, not death. Kinship is not killing, love, not hate. In your love, love. make us family again. again. <laughs> make us plowshares sowing peace by renouncing every act of violence committed by our friends, our country, or our enemies. May we refuse to be weapons against our brothers and sisters. In your power, make us peaceful again. Make us fearless, relentlessly waging peace instead of war, refusing to accept any act that cuts, kills, and breaks down people made in your image. As our good parents, make us fierce peacemakers again. For those who laid down their lives for others, and who have joined God in the unseen kingdom, for those who have died to the kingdom of death, and who have risen to life with Christ in their breath, we raise, we raise, <laughs> we raise our hope, because joy comes in the morning. morning. Thank you guys. We raise our hope because joy comes in the morning. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Amen. And over to Karina. Amen. Thank you for that, Sarah. I think um, it's important for us to be in those places where grief, we, we remember the enormity of grief that the world is carrying and to suffer with those, suffer alongside them, be with them in that way. And this month is, it's the June is the double whammy. It's Pride Month and it's Indigenous History Month. And when I think about coming to the table, the table of Christ, the Lord's Supper, it is really a time for us to be remembered to one another. And Sometimes that um, maybe sometimes that's a focus of thinking about who has been dismembered from the body, who has been told that they have not been welcome, or that the way that they are is not welcome. And so it's a chance for us to just recommit in our hearts to join in the message of Jesus to so love the world. And 
So in that spirit, um, I'm going to be reading a modified version of a, of a liturgy that I found online for communion. So I invite you to get your communion elements, something to eat, something to drink, if that works for you. And I'm just going to read through this here together, and then we'll take, uh, we will remember ourselves. We are the body of Christ, justice-seeking, bread-breaking, hymn-singing, risk-taking body of Christ, baptized by one spirit. We are members of one body. Many and varied in culture, sexuality, age, class, and ability, we are members of Christ's beautiful body. None of us can say to another, I have no need of you, for only together can we find wholeness. Holy One, we gather this day as one people, members of the same body, grateful for your many gifts and carrying the hope within us for a world filled with love. This hope was given by you from the very beginning of your creation. You made the earth and all the lives on it. You inspired prophets and widows and slaves to seek liberation from all that oppress so that we might be released to love fully. You became incarnate in Christ so that through him, we might experience the depth and width of your unquenchable love. While Jesus lived among us, he stood up for women and children. He touched the untouchable, healed the sick and welcomed those who had given up hope of being included. Through Jesus, we see a path not only to our own freedom, but a path to the liberation of the whole world. Jesus taught us that it will not be in the brutality of violence that our world will be saved. Rather, it will be in showing kindness to our neighbor, in standing up against injustice, in returning hate with love, and in transforming one heart at a time. It will be in the simple but holy task of dining together, sharing bread and wine, truly seeing one another as beloved by you. We know this because on the night before he was murdered, Jesus took bread, gave thanks to God, broke it and gave it to his friends saying, take, eat, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me, do this to remember me. After dinner, he took the cup of wine, gave thanks and gave it to them and said, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new promise poured out for you and for all the forgiveness of sins. Do this to remember me. Send your Holy Spirit into these gifts of bread and wine, crackers and juice, whatever you have. Send your Holy Spirit Make it alive in us that we may recognize each other as members of the same body, Christ's hands and feet and heart sent for the healing of the world. We ask this in your name. Let's remember together. I'm going to pray for us. Once again, God, you give us what we need. You give us sacrament. You give us one another, hope for a better day. And with renewed energy, we offer ourselves to be sent out in your name, hopeful, 
grateful leaders of liberation and proclaimers of your kingdom come. Amen. Right. I have the final task of uh, Romay. I didn't see her. I forgot. I was like, on to the next thing. Sorry, you guys. Um, I want to introduce our speaker for this morning. And I could, I could talk all day on Romay. She is one of my dearest friends. And um, she and her husband run the All People Free organization. We've heard from Ben a few months ago. And Romay, I am thrilled to hear from you and to hear your journey uh, from being a, 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 we've had a similar journey. We've moved from being religious know-it-alls to like ridiculous question askers and welcomers of everybody and everything. So Jesus, I just pray that you would fill Romay in this moment with the hope and confidence that comes from freedom the freedom of love, the freedom of belonging, and the freedom of being able to be wrong and learn something new. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Karina. I love you. I feel like my rice cracker was a mistake because now I got it all in my teeth, but bear with me. You guys, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much for lending me your ears and your eyes and I just feel really grateful. It's been a minute since I got to speak to people, so thank you. I hope that today I can offer you some things to think about, maybe some hope for the future. And mostly I hope that I can give voice to some of the questions you might have on the verge of asking, like on the tip of your tongue. You know, those questions that kind of sit under the surface wanting to be asked. I hope I can give voice to some of those for you. I used to be terrified of questions. I thought the only way to be spiritual was to have all the answers. I grew up in a Christian school, maybe some of you did too where we had entire classes devoted to defending our faith, loading us up with all the certainty in, world, in the world so we could convince the evil world that we were the most right and they could join our ranks. Am I right? I was right almost all the time. Nowadays, the only thing I'm really certain of is that I have more questions than answers and I'm totally okay with it. Certainty isn't actually Certainty is the opposite of faith. Doubt isn't like we sometimes believe because if you're certain of something, you actually don't need faith. It makes sense. <laughs> so the question I want to ask today is a really important one that I want us to sit with for a minute. The question is this, in your tribe of people, in our tribe of people, who's in and who's out? It isn't a shame question. I'm not here to like make you feel guilty or anything like that. We all do it. It's the great question of humanity. We've been asking it since the beginning of time, haven't we? Humans are driven to sort ourselves into groups because we have this innate need to belong. Brene, Brene Brown says we are wired for belonging and it's true. And the church isn't any different in this regard. It's maybe even more prone to this kind of categorizing with our different denominations and non-denominations, starting into groups of who believes what or who confesses this or who do, does the creeds or who does the Lord's Supper a certain way. Like we've got all these little factions 
And I love the way the bridge is really so welcoming of all. I think you guys have done a really good job of having an open door, but the norm in modern Christianity and probably in some of our hearts that are here today is to define our belonging more by who is out than by having a wide open door for all to be in. We end up with just so many groups. Now, I believe that shame is the underlying driver of this need to sort ourselves by who belongs and who doesn't. Shame says that something is innately wrong with me. And since everything we think about others is a projection of what we actually believe about ourselves, it makes sense that to ease our own shame, we cast the other aside. We avoid our sense of not belonging by ensuring there's a tidy group that we can fit into. You know, if I'm honest, I still love the feeling of being on the right side of in. It's hard to admit, but it's true. My version of in has definitely changed over the years. It's gotten wider, higher, and deeper, but I still relish the feeling of being right, especially when it comes to, I don't know, politics (laughs) these days. But here's the deal. No matter how we frame it or how we baptize all the words, sorting is the devil's tool. It always has been. Another way of saying one of the names for Satan, the accuser of the brethren, is by calling him the categorizer, because an accuser sorts people into who's wrong and who's right. So it's always the force of the devil, no matter what the devil is, even if it's just the ego, is to make some wrong so that others can be right. And it's no mystery that LGBTQ plus folks are the quintessential out in most of Christianity right now. I know the bridge is affirming in their theology with affirming leaders, but I still wanna dive into the concept and tell my story because chances are that it's hard for at least some of us, like it was for me, to kind of come around to a different way of thinking on this. And I want you to hear me that none of this is accusatory. So I hope you'll hear my heart relating to wherever you find yourself today and then hear my encouragement to evolve towards love. I can relate because I've been on the side that loved the sinner, hated the sin and felt compelled to speak the truth in love for the sake of the kingdom. I wanna tell you my story of going from being exclusive to inclusive and how Jesus taught me that in or out, actually have no place in the kingdom I was dead set on defending. So from a self-proclaimed moral expert to an open-armed renegade with a wide open table, I just wanna share my story and then the story of some people that I love. Like I said, I was a bona fide love the sinner, hate the sin Jesus freak. I've always been a people lover and had the best of intentions, though subconsciously smug, but that didn't mean I didn't cause harm. Our intentions don't actually mean we're not hurting people. I grew up in a charismatic non-denominational church that rivaled the local vineyard during the renewal movement. We were holy rollers before the laughter was a thing. If you lived through it, you know what I'm talking about. We had certainty about all the ways we were the rightest and the closest to God because we had the Holy Ghost and all those other churches didn't. So they were dead. You know, I wonder if any of you can relate to that. And my first personal experience with a gay man was when I was somewhere in my upper teens. I grew up with Chad. Our families went to the same Holy Roland church. We ate at Bonanza buffet every Sunday where his sister, Nicole and I would like pretend to speak a different language by talking gibberish. And we totally thought we had all the servers convinced that we were from like, I don't know, the Ukraine. So obnoxious, 
So that gives you a picture of what I was like. So Chad was my older brother's best friend. He came on family vacations with us. We've known him since we were children, the whole deal. Looking back and knowing Chad, it should have been no surprise. But when he came out, we were horrified and quickly ostracized him. Suddenly he was out, even though he'd been in all along. I'm not proud of this. So there was a weekend revival at our church, camp meeting we called it. David Diamond was in town from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. He was a flaming red-haired, fired up preacher who used to stand outside of strip clubs. And when they'd open the door, he would scream at the top of his lung, hell is hot. So you know exactly the type of moral expert he was. He got us so hyped up, probably sang his famous song, The Devil's in the Phone Booth. He's dialing 911. The church is on her knees and she's loaded up her spiritual guns. So anyway, we were in a frenzy of the Holy Ghost or whatever it was. And on a break, I decided to walk over to the gas station around the corner for a snack where I found Chad to be working. It was the first time I'd seen him since his coming out and his casting out subsequently. I was feeling all kinds of righteous, what with having been at the revival all weekend. So when he asked how I was, I told him I was, wait for it, saved, sanctified, and filled with the Holy Ghost. I did. I said those words. It's not my proudest moment, but it gets worse. I proceeded in my oh-so-righteous fervor to tell him that he would never be happy as a gay man and that this lifestyle was a bad choice for him and it was wrong and that he needed to choose differently and come back to the Lord. I thought that this was some kind of holiness, that I was brave enough to speak these words in love. But what it turns out to be, as Paul Young would call it, was actually ass holiness. And I, I have since talked to him and made things right. but. I, what a devastation. And all of that is to say that I know exactly what it is like, what it feels like to sit in the seat of loving people because I loved Chad, but not be able to see their reality as valid because my theology dominated the human heart and the human experience. So that gives you an idea of where I come from. The firmness with which I stood on my moral platform that I would feel good about saying something like this, to a person I had known nearly my whole life. A few years after that, I had an encounter with grace that started to shift my thinking about God. I remember another dear friend with tears down his face asking me if he could find Jesus without going to the church because the church had caused him so much harm. Can I find Jesus without going to the church? This question has haunted me for 20 years. And I think there's a lot of people in the LGBTQ plus community asking the same question. And you know what? How we approach it can be a matter of life or death. Experience is our best teacher. We can all learn theology and intellectual reasonings behind something we're told to believe. But if our experiences and our life won't line up, we're left with confusion. And undoing what our lived experience has taught us is not done through mental gymnastics. We end up gaslighting our own selves, convincing ourselves that our experience isn't real or valid or worthy. And it's so damaging to both our psyches and our bodies. 
it's no wonder we have a mental health crisis on our hands. Trying to warp your experience into an outside expectation is crazy making and it's actually trauma. So as my story continued, I lived to confront the ideologies that would push people to ask if they could find Jesus without going to the church. What have we done with the gospel? Pushing the very people Jesus would have hung out with into the margins. But still, I couldn't reconcile what I saw as the issue of homosexuality and what I was told the Bible said about it. I could love people, but I couldn't agree with their lifestyle being okay. And I sat there for a long, long time. Then one day, I walked into the Linden Library. And from across the room, I saw a blue and yellow book on the shelf. And it was way too far to even see the words on the title. But it was like a light was shining down from heaven. And I knew I was meant to read that book. I walked straight over to it and picked it up and then walked around with nervous tension in my stomach, knowing it was going to change everything and cause a heck of a lot of conflict in my life. And it did. It did. The book is Does Jesus Really Love Me by Jeff Chu. It's probably backwards, but that's the book. A Gay Christian's Pilgrimage in Search of God in America. Each chapter tells a different story. Um, Jeff Chu is a journalist. And so each chapter is the story of somebody else that he interviewed. And he covers people from every and one end of the spectrum to the other, from the Westboro Baptist people who hold up all the gays are going to burn in hell signs to gay Christians who are fully affirming and part of an affirming church to people who have abandoned their faith because they couldn't reconcile it with their sexuality to people who have decided to live celibate as a Christian because they think that their sexuality is abhorrent to God to people who've gone through conversion therapy. I mean, every, everything you can imagine, the chat, there's a chapter about it. And he weaves each story with such grace and humanity. It's quite something. So I couldn't escape the reality of each story. I couldn't back away and look at it as just an issue to be solved. It was suddenly very real people with very real experiences. See, the closer we get to real stories, real humans, the harder it is to create the distance that marginalizes. Because we start to realize we're all connected. And on some level, we're all the same. We all want to be loved as we are. So when my friend's brother came out around the same time, I was so moved. I couldn't distance myself from his tender heart that had been through years of trying to pray the gay away from a super conservative home, like really conservative fundamental parents. And he'd been through the conversions, the exorcisms, the prayer meetings, the therapy, the begging God, and he could not get ungayed. And I knew him and this, this proximity was so heartbreaking and it, it couldn't be denied. I couldn't look at it as an issue that I could solve with my moral superiority or my theological study. I had to, like Jesus, get down in the dirt with actual humans, look them in the eyes and hear their stories to get their full picture. And lo and behold, in these stories, I found Christ. So I have a real life story for you now. The story of my friend, Laura. We met back in 1997, back in the stone age when 
She came from Calgary to my holy rolling church to change her life. This is what she wrote. These are her words. Ever since I was nine, I remember God being so important in my life. I was absolutely in love with him. He showed me who he was through many miracles and what seemed to me huge revelations of his spirit moving on my heart and my mind. I loved God. I felt so close and special to him. God wasn't scary or a big punisher in the sky who threw lightning bolts at sinners. He's never been that to me. God loved me and I loved him and that's all there was to it. Fast forward a few years later when I was struggling with this completely disgusting and unforgiving shameless thought. Me liking girls and wanting to be so close to that girl. These kind of thoughts started off so innocently in my mind. I liked my third grade teacher more than I should have. I liked what that girl looked like or how she made me laugh. I liked how I felt warm inside and I had butterflies all in my stomach. I wanted to hold her hand, kiss her. I wanted to do something special for that girl. I knew I was thinking differently than my friends. I started to listen a lot more closely to my parents' conversations with their friends about my cousin who liked men. I would hear, it's such a shame. It's such a perversion. Once you have that sexual sin going on, it's hard to get rid of that desire. God will not accept that behavior into his kingdom. He turns his face away from unrepentant sin and casts them into hell. Then I would hear my parents and friends say that it's our job to love the sinner and hate the sin and not judge. Of course, we are doing just what the Bible calls us to do. We must tell them and show them how sick this sexual sin is. I would hear these same beliefs at my church and my family, at my Christian school, and it was so devastating to me. I felt so betrayed by God. How could he do this to me? I thought we loved each other. I thought God and I were a team. It broke my heart. I was raised that being selfish is a sin, disobedience is a sin, and sexual perversion is a huge sin. I felt so torn inside. I wanted God so bad. I longed for him. I cried at the altar for him. I prayed in my bed, God, I'm so sorry for these thoughts. I'm sorry I'm disgusting you and your face is turned away from me. Please forgive me. I tried over and over to pray the gay away. In 1997, I ran away to come to Bible school. I thought I will devote my life to God, not date for a year and do everything everyone tells me and that will work. I left my best friends, my life, the girl I had feelings for. I cried almost the entire seven and a half hours from Calgary to Kelowna. This better work. I was so alone. I didn't know who to tell these huge, awful, disgusting secrets to. I would stare in the mirror and say, oh, I almost can't say this. I would stare in the mirror and say, God hates you, Laura. You're gross. You're ugly. Your thoughts are immoral. You are unnatural and you're going to hell. This is pretty powerful stuff to say over yourself while looking in the mirror and believing every word. So I did all the right things. I renounced my friends, burnt all my non-Christian CDs, gave my testimony, went to England on missions, married a man, went to church, was in leadership, speaking to the women's Bible study group, put my kids in the Christian school, loved my husband, kept praying for God to take away this unnatural sinful desire. I was married to my husband for 17 years and I loved him. So why wasn't I happy? What was I doing wrong? I chose God and not myself, hadn't I? Isn't that what God wants? I loved my husband, just not like I knew I had the ability to love someone and be loved by someone of the same sex. I was in the wrestling ring. The bell had rung and I dropped my gloves and said, God, I know I can't have both this type of love and you. So please just rip that ugly part out of me and let's be close again. My faith and my sexuality were forever pitted against each other. And this was to be my lifelong struggle and pain to bear. I had to hate part of myself that I couldn't remove. 
and also love out of that same heart, my husband, kids, friends, and others. It was so confusing and exhausting. I just wanted to love all of Laura and not separate her into two and love Laura one and hate Laura two. My life blew up in the summer of 2017. I was no longer married and we had split custody. We lived separately and on our way to an eventual divorce. I love Craig to this day and we co-parent wonderfully and remain good friends. I had to really look at my life. I did counseling, read anything I could find on being a gay Christian and started being more real in my conversations with God. I would talk to him like he knew I liked girls and he had to be okay with it or he would have done something about it by now. I learned that God never left. He didn't turn his face away from me. He was always loving me, encouraging me to come back to him, the creator who made all of me and saw that I was good. It took a lot of undoing from the lies and manipulation the church and some mentors weaved so intricately into the fabric of my being. I'm still undoing. I still have trauma I'm working on. Hating yourself and believing you are subclass and less than creates a shit ton, ton of trauma in your life. I now have a girlfriend of almost three years who loves me and loves my children with all her heart. All three of us co-parent and celebrate birthdays and Christmases together. I'm so glad I have an inclusive God who loves all of us. The power of his love is so much more powerful than shame and self-loathing. Oh, thank you, Laura, for sharing such clear and vulnerable words with us. What I hear most loudly in Laura's story is that when she finally got real with God and showed and when she finally got real with God, God showed her a message contrary to what religion had told her, that God had never turned his face from her. The love of God is inescapable. It was religion that told her anything different. And you know what? Laura's story is not uncommon. I could name seven or eight people just that I know that have almost the same stories. We all know the, the story in Matthew, Matthew 7, in which Jesus said, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? And based on Laura's experience and countless others, it would seem that either God is handing out stones when his children ask for bread in this regard, or he's 100% okay with their queerness. He made them that way. Spending a lifetime to do all the things to get rid of their internal reality, begging God to change, change it, but he doesn't. So my question is, what are we as Christians giving these people? During my reading of Jeff Chu's book, I remember wrestling so hard with the question. I still, I still don't fully know why the church is dead set on sexuality as the final frontier, but it really was a hard adjustment for me to come to. It started with me agreeing to not know the answers, like to not know if being gay was okay or not, which isn't the same as being affirming, by the way, but it was a step towards true love, which has to include the entire person not just the parts that seem acceptable or in. Then I had another divinely led experience, much like the library book. I was reading the Bible and Acts 10 took on a totally different meaning. It's the story of Cornelius, the Gentile Italian centurion, who was a God-fearing man. And Peter, the disciple being called to visit him. Peter was a Jew, as we know, and being such, it would have been illegal for him to associate with Gentiles like Cornelius. 
But God gave Peter a vision in which all sorts of animals considered unclean by his culture came down from heaven on a sheet. God's angel told Peter to eat them, to which Peter replied, uh, heck no, not happening. I will not eat anything that is unclean. And God's answer to Peter had the same light shining on it as the book in the library. I think you probably know maybe what he said. He said, don't call anything unclean, which I have called clean. I remember weeping and weeping. If my friend Laura can have the experience of being accepted by God, how dare we continue to draw that line and call them unclean? The entire history of God is a trajectory towards love and we need to evolve towards it too. The damage is too great and it's being exposed now more than ever. I believe it's our mandate to ensure that no person within our realms feels the way Laura felt or hears the message that God considers them unclean. The tearing of herself in two, the choosing between herself and God, the self-loathing because of something she couldn't change or heal from no matter what she did. It's time for an evolving theology. We all know that Jesus reimagined theology all the time. Every time he said, you've heard it said, but I say to you, he was reimagining what we thought about God. He reimagined modern theology when he sat with the woman at the well. He reimagined modern theology when he said he and the father were one. He reimagined modern theology when he got in the dirt with the woman caught in adultery and sent her accusers away. He, he reimagined his modern theology when he healed on the Sabbath, washed the disciples' feet, went to the cross instead of saving Israel. So it's time for us to be willing to do the same. It's okay for us to change our theology to love people. Theology is, after all, the study of the nature of God and religious belief. It's just the study of what we think to be true about God. Theology isn't the certain definition of God. It must evolve and change and move as our understanding deepens, or else humanity will never move away from where it's been, which included things like slavery and oppression of women. Humanity is moving. What people in the Old Testament narratives thought to be true about God turns out wasn't necessarily true the way they thought it was. We don't still think God would ask us to treat our slaves with kindness, do we? Because we know that God isn't okay with slavery, but that was part of their theology. And as Sarah Bessie so eloquently puts it, people must never be the th collateral damage of our theology. In fact, I would propose that if we are placing our beliefs about God, our theology above loving people, we've actually made an idol of it. How does that sit? Another friend, the brother I mentioned earlier, wrote a bit of a charge for the church. He has been part of the collateral damage of toxic religious theology. And I will say that his persistence in loving the people that have hurt him is more Christ-like than those who say they're standing for God. He wrote this specifically for Christians who are maybe on the verge of being affirming or inclusive. These are, these are his words. I felt completely rejected by the mainstream evangelical movement. To a certain extent, I still do. I wasn't accepted as a whole person because I was looked at by leaders and my peers as an incomplete believer. My desire for transformation and healing ended up causing a lot of emotional trauma in my life. And it wasn't until I stopped trying to change myself and accept myself that I began a journey of real healing and inner transformation. And that wasn't a journey into being a straight man. 
It was a journey of personal acceptance and love. The church has caused and continues to cause trauma by perpetuating the idea that straight is the only biblical way to live. The church since its creation has interpreted verses to persecute minorities and vulnerable people. It has used the Bible to perpetuate all manner of persecution and it's time to wake up. So that's from somebody like living in it, you know, like having lived through all of the, the trauma of trying to change because he loved God. And the church is missing out on people like this, you guys. It takes more than just being nice and believing differently and being affirming in the way you think. I think we need to actually take action in changing the narrative so that queer people have an elevated voice in our churches and in leadership. We need each other. We need each other. We need the Christ that is revealed in everyone. So it's my challenge to you to find out how you can be part of the healing, part of the inclusion of people who've been so tragically left out. Let the questions that want to be asked find a voice that leads to love. Because if our theology isn't leading towards more love, it needs a reimagining. And to my queer friends, know that you are loved. You are worthy of love exactly as you are. And your experience is valid. And also that what God says to you is more real than what any organization or person has told you God says. That's the truth. So happy pride, everybody. Thank you so much.